Hi, I'm Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we're taking a look at Christian peacemaking and nonviolence with Father John Deere, the author of The God of Peace, Toward a Theology of Nonviolence. Father Deere, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Dennis. Please call me John. John, all right. All right, so a little background information. Uh, Father John Deere is an internationally known author, activist, and teacher of peace and nonviolence. He's worked closely with legendary peacemakers such as Mother Teresa, Daniel and Philip Berrigan, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, Thich Nhat Hanh, Cesar Chavez, and Coretta Scott King. A Catholic priest, he served as the director of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, the largest interfaith peace organization in the United States. He has written 35 books. Father John Deere has been arrested and jailed over 80 times in acts of nonviolent civil disobedience against war and nuclear weapons and spent some nine months in jail for one particular action. He was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize by Archbishop Desmond Tutu. All right. So it's great to have you on the show. Um, To start with, how do you define violence and how do you define nonviolence? Well, thank you very much, Dennis, for having me, and especially to talk about a theology of nonviolence. I wrote this book, I don't know if folks can see it, 30 years ago, The God of Peace Toward a Theology of Nonviolence, and it's still in print. But it's just, I mean, reflecting on this, coming to see you, it's, it's sad to me that this is the first book ever written on a theology of nonviolence, and there hasn't been one since nor has it spread or taken root. It's not taught in seminaries or theology schools. And I think that's very sad because it's so obvious to me that all theology, all talk or study of God, which is what theology is, should be about nonviolence and the nonviolence of God. So let me just say a nutshell what I'm, where I'm coming from, and then I'll define violence and nonviolence. Um, I believe with Gandhi and Martin Luther King, that nonviolence, active nonviolence, is the only positive way to change the world, that Jesus of Nazareth preached and taught total nonviolence, that he revealed that God is totally nonviolent, and that the kingdom of God is total nonviolence. And we don't want any of that. We much prefer to be violent, to prepare to destroy the planet and kill one another. We've rejected Jesus's nonviolence. We want a God who's violent, who blesses our wars. So we've created for 1700 years, at least all these false theologies and false spiritualities of violence and war to match our idolatry of violence and war. And so we have taught, if you ask anybody in the street, God is violent. Jesus is violent. Therefore we can be violent. And God blesses our wars. And all of this, Dennis, is a lie. And it's all heresy and blasphemy and idolatry. So that's why this is so political. And no one can touch this. But it's right in the Gospels. I didn't make it up. When I wrote this, all the great theologians that I was working with thought I was making it up. But it's right there in the Gospels. So this question that I that got me going on this 35 years ago was the word hermeneutic. It's a very important word. It means your perspective. So I go to theology with a Gandhian, Kingian hermeneutic. In other words, I look at everything in life 
as if it were Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King. And I say that because those are the two greatest figures in the history of nonviolence. And when you read the Gospels and think about God and theology and spirituality from a Gandhian, Kingian hermeneutic of nonviolence, everything turns upside down. And you begin, so I'm looking at the questions, what if Jesus was totally nonviolent? What does that mean for us? What if he's right that he's saying that God is totally nonviolent, that we're all created to be nonviolent, that the church is supposed to be a community of nonviolence, that every aspect of life, including theology, spirituality, culture, the churches, should be about gospel nonviolence and active nonviolence. I find this very, very exciting. I think this is the theology of the future, and I hope people will talk about it. So it's hard to give your definitions in a nutshell, but I know that's critical. I guess I would define, first of all, violence and nonviolence. Violence is simply harming or hurting or killing anyone in thought, word, or deed. But that includes participation in or complicity with social, systemic, institutionalized harming or hurting anyone or any creature or Mother Earth. So you could say, well, I'm not a violent person. Well, if you're living in the United States, you're complicit in systemic racism, sexism, wars, bombing people, building nuclear weapons and destroying the Earth. We're all up to our ears in violence. Active nonviolence, how do we talk about it? I define, I've always defined it as beginning with a vision of reconciled humanity. In other words, you begin with the truth that all life is sacred, that we're already one, already reconciled, all sisters and brothers of one another, all children of the God of peace. And the deeper you go into the truth of reality that we're all one, you widen it to realize we're one with all the creatures and Mother Earth. You can never hurt anybody much less kill someone, much less be silent in, as we're heading down the cliff towards you know, global destruction. So, you know, in the old days of the King civil rights movement, they would have defined nonviolence as a tactic and a strategy. But now we know it's much more than that. It's a way of life, a way of life, a way of life. It's also a spiritual path, so it's a spirituality. And it's also, and this is what I'm friends with, all of Martin Luther King's friends who are still alive, it's a, they've taught me, it's a political methodology. It's an important word that Jim Lawson taught me. Nonviolence is a political methodology for positive social change that always works through bottom-up, organized, people-power, grassroots movements. So nonviolence is not a utopian ideal or impractical. It's totally practical. In fact, it's the only realistic way forward. So with nonviolence, we renounce violence and promise never to hurt anyone. And we organize love and goodness in pursuit of the truth of our common unity, in pursuit of justice for every human being and discernment and peace toward the whole human race and all of creation, which means we have to resist. This is all part of the definition. Nonviolence includes resistance to all systemic evil and all non-cooperation with evil. And by that, I mean systemic injustice and warfare and nuclear weapons. And meanwhile, we're persistently reconciling with every human being, disarming our hearts of the inner violence within us as we're working for the disarmament of the world. And therefore, we practice unconditional, all-inclusive, all-encompassing, non-retaliatory, sacrificial, universal love universal love toward every human being and every creature and Mother Earth 
with one big catch. And this is the bottom line, which nobody likes. There is no cause, however noble, for which we will ever again support the taking of a single human life. We do not support killing anyone, the killing of a single human being. Instead, we give our lives in the struggle for justice and disarmament and peace to stop the killings. We do not kill people. We do not kill people who kill people to show that killing people is wrong. We give our lives to work to end all the killings and the root causes of killing and war and to educate every human being in the methodology and spirituality of nonviolence so that we can ultimately take the trillions of dollars for war and killing and instead institutionalize global nonviolent conflict resolution and build and create new cultures of peace and nonviolence. That's the future of humanity. So in this vision of active nonviolence, we're nonviolent to ourselves, nonviolent to every human being on the planet, nonviolent to every creature and Mother Earth, and we're part of the global grassroots movement to disarm the world. Now, if Martin Luther King were here and you asked him his definition, you go, no, John doesn't get it. Uh, so it's so interesting to me. Martin said, nonviolence is power. That's a very <laughs> amazing definition. He's saying the culture of violence and war says you are powerless. There's nothing you can do. And Martin says nonviolence is the power of God to change ourselves and the world. And if we engage in it, it always works. So therefore, there's nothing passive about nonviolence. That's very important. Gandhi went farther than this and, got, and said he defined nonviolence as a force more powerful than all the weapons of the world combined. I mean, we can meditate on that for the rest of our lives because he said uh, nonviolence is the power of God's love and truth put at our disposal to disarm the world and live at peace with one another and all creation. So nonviolence is a way to change the world and ourselves. And I came along and said, oh, well, there's also, I mean, if Jesus is nonviolent, then there's a theology and spirituality of nonviolence that will help us in our work to build a more nonviolent world. So those are some thoughts, Dennis. All right. So speaking of Jesus, you have two different chapters, one on uh, the Jesus, the nonviolent Jesus, and the other one on the Christ of peace. So why two chapters? And then if you could go into some more depth in um, how we're to see Christ as our model and teacher regarding nonviolence. Yeah, so this has been my life's work since I wrote the book 30 years ago, to teach Christians around the world that Jesus is nonviolent. So I'm going to be 63 this summer, and I had lived in El Salvador in the mid-1980s with the famous Jesuit theologians who were later all assassinated. And I worked in a refugee camp, and we were being bombed. And when the death squads came in, I was the one who was supposed to go out and meet them. So you learn a lot quickly, <laughs> and that's where I'm coming from. And that turned my understanding of Christianity upside down, as it should. Um, and as I met these great liberation theologians, one of the key things I learned is so powerful. It just moves me so much. That the starting point is everything. And if you are servants of war and the Pentagon and the Third Reich or, you know, the Crusades in the Middle Ages, 
then you're all about power and the empire and domination, and you're trying to get God to be on your side. You see what I mean? If you're the upside down, if you're on the side of the poor, the side of the victims, the side of the enemy, your starting point's a very different place. And um, so that's why what I wrote is just completely different than all other first world theologies, um, which start with God, with a high Christology. Christ is enthroned and God is untouchable but God supports us here in America. God supports rich, educated white men on the imperial church, the war-making church, because God supports Wall Street and the Pentagon and blesses our troops. If you are uh, beginning to see that Jesus is nonviolent, you realize that's a whole false theology of violence and a false theory spirituality of violence that leads to the just war theory and all this baloney. So I began the wrong way, which is what liberation theology does. I'm trying to answer your question about Jesus, (laughs) but it's really, really, really important. You start with the epidemic of violence that we're all suffering through, that the world is full of violence. It's like a plague of violence that we're all killing one another and destroying the planet. And then you, you turn to the Gospels, and to see what does Jesus have to say about that. And you should discover that's all he's talking about. He's not talking about being high and mighty religious authorities like the Pharisees and Sadducees or God up in a high place. He's talking about here and now, ending poverty and injustice and practice universal love and peacemaking, therefore total nonviolence. And then he reveals that God is a God of total nonviolence, so the scandal of the gospel and therefore the theology, I think, of a nonviolent Jesus is not just that Jesus is totally nonviolent, but that God is a God of total nonviolence and universal love. And that's what God expects of every human being. So um, that's why I began, um, you know, with the gospels and with the world. And um, so you're asking me... Um, about I, I had the two chapters, Jesus and Christ. Well, that's because nobody talks about Jesus anymore, Dennis, in theology. And I'm quite serious. Most theologies, you don't begin with Jesus. Um, it, to me, it's incredible. We gotta, we're on the brink of global destruction, especially with nuclear war and catastrophic climate change. But we're onto our own thing, you know, this ethereal theology. And we lead in with a very high Christology about the Christ who's removed from the world. I think that that then leads to justifications for the insanity of the world. So I, I think if Jesus is violent, we don't need him. He's no help whatsoever. He's not saving us. He's just another violent messiah. And there's a billion of them, from George W. Bush to Hitler to the Roman Empire to Obama. I mean, everybody's for violence. And we have this church of violence. But I came to the conclusion that it's the only thing we can say for sure is that Jesus practiced nonviolence. Nobody in history we know had ever said the words, love your enemies. So I start talking about this Jesus in the Gospels in light of the world. And I coming at it from a Gandhian king perspective. And Gandhi said, 
so if you'll hang in here with me as I unpack Jesus a little bit, I'll give some shorter answers later. But this is so important to understand my whole point. Gandhi, he said Jesus was the greatest person of nonviolence who ever lived. And he said, then the only people who don't know Jesus is not nonviolent are Christians. And so I've spent my whole life on that sentence trying to change that poor lament of Gandhi. And he's saying Jesus never hurt anyone. He never supported hurting or killing because he was totally nonviolent. And he had to be, therefore, against totally against the Roman Empire, which killed millions of people, and the religious establishment, which collaborated with the empire and blessed its wars and stole everybody's money in the name of God. So he wasn't passive. He, Jesus was a practitioner of active nonviolence and built a campaign of active nonviolence and was a messiah of nonviolence, which nobody wanted then or now. So um, Gandhi read from the Sermon on the Mount every morning and every evening for 45 years. It's shocking. I don't think any other human being has ever done that. That's how he became a hero of nonviolence. He said the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, are the greatest teachings of nonviolence in the history of the world. I want to be a person of nonviolence, so I have to read it. I actually went to the place where he prayed in India. I, I read all the collected works of Gandhi for an anthology of, of non, uh, Gandhi and nonviolence I did. So uh, he's saying, as Martin Luther King agreed, that all the teachings of Jesus propose a vision of total nonviolence. Love one another. Love your neighbor uh, as yourself. Show compassion to everyone. Seek justice for the poor. Forgive everyone. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Turn the other cheek. Take up the cross. Lay down your life in love and so forth. Um, but it's in the Sermon on the Mount where at the climax, the fifth and sixth antithesis, where uh, Gandhi said, Jesus said, the most radical things ever said. You have heard it said, thou shalt not kill. I say to you, do not even get angry. Go and be reconciled. That's the first one. It's way beyond war or violence. Don't even be angry. Commandment in the, in the Greek is katagalite. But the fifth one is, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's the law of Israel. But I say to you, in the Greek, the best translation is, offer no violent resistance to one who does evil. Offer no violent resistance to one who does evil. So Jesus there with his disciples, he's doing a nonviolence training like Martin Luther King, and he gives five examples. When someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. You can't be struck on the right cheek. He's talking about with the left hand, top-down humiliation. God, uh, Mar uh, Tolstoy spent the last 25 years of his life teaching and writing about this one sentence, offer no violent resistance to one who does evil. He was trying to change the Russian church, and he failed. But one guy read him and took it to heart, and that was Gandhi. But that's just the, prelimin the, the beginning of the climax, which is, you have heard it said, love your countrymen and hate your enemies, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for your persecutors. Then you will be sons and daughters of the God who lets the sun rise on the good and the bad and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So this sentence is the most political sentence in the entire Bible. Practice universal love, no more killing, 
total nonviolence, love your even your enemies. It's nation state language. So the people your country is killing. It's not the difficult person you're across the street. Or I don't like my boss. He's my enemy. That's not what this is about. It's your nation state killing, declaring another nation state your enemies and you're killing them. So for Americans, it would be the people of Vietnam or Nicaragua or Iraq or Afghanistan. You have to love those people. But what's so shocking, if you care about theology, which I don't think we care about, is that in this most political statement in the entire Bible, Jesus gives the best description of the nature of God. In one sentence, it's the most important sentence in the whole Bible, and it's the one sentence that Christians will have nothing to do with. Love your enemies, then you're really sons and daughters of the God who lets the sun rise on the good and the bad and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. In other words, God is a God of universal love. God is a God of total nonviolence. God is a peacemaker. It's so shocking. So then we ask, well, do we really believe in that God? That's the question of this theology and the Gospels. So Jesus teaches this, and I always joke he thinks he's Gandhi or Dr. King. He organizes a campaign like the Salt March, sends 72 people ahead of him. He's going to Jerusalem. He marches to Jerusalem on a campaign of nonviolence, walks into the temple where the religious authorities work with the empire in the name of God at Passover to steal all the money of the poor, and he, and he resists this big business, the commerce in the name of God and the blessing of the empire and all of it, and turns over the tables of the money changers. It's nonviolent civil disobedience, something I know a lot about. He doesn't hit anybody, hurt anybody, kill anybody, or drop any nuclear bombs. I just wanted to be clear about that. But this guy is not passive. He takes direct action, accepts the consequences, and this is the normative behavior of a Christian. We do not kill, but we're not passive. We take action to stop injustice and killing. And um, so there in, at the Passover, he's waiting. He's going to be arrested and killed, as anybody would be who does that. He takes the bread and says, my body broken for you. He takes the cup, my blood shed for you. And Christians commemorate this as the Eucharist, and totally do not understand it and disobey it. By that I mean, if Jesus were a good American, he should have said, go break their bodies for me. Go shed their blood for me. That's not what he says. My body broken for you, my blood shed for you. Do this. This is the new covenant of nonviolence. So every time you participate in communion, Eucharist, you're entering into the methodology of Jesus. You don't like that? A few hours later, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Here come the horrible Roman soldiers to arrest him and torture him and kill him. What does Peter think? Oh, my God, we got to protect our guy. If there's ever a just war in human history, if violence is ever divinely sanctioned, if God ever wants anyone to kill, this is the moment in all of human history to protect our guy, the Holy One. And he's right. So he takes up the sword to go and kill to protect the Holy One. And just then the commandment comes down, put down the sword. These are the last words of Jesus to the church before he was killed, to his community of men and women. It's the last thing they all heard him say, put down the sword. And I think it's the first time Peter and the gang understood who he was.
that they realize that all the Sermon on the Mount talk of peace, love, and compassion, he's deadly serious about. In other words, he's so serious about nonviolence, he's not going to let them kill to protect themselves or him. So what do they do? They all run away. They all abandon him. This is critically important to understand that that's how serious Jesus is about nonviolence. So Jesus is arrested, mocked, and tortured by 600 drunken Roman soldiers and doesn't get angry, not one trace of retaliation or any trace of violence. He's the most courageous person who ever lived. And in effect, he goes to his death in total nonviolence. You read Gandhi about him and saying, the violence stops here in my body. You're all forgiven, but the days of war and killing are over. And that's why resurrection is so amazing to me because resurrection means having nothing to do with death, which means having not a a trace or a drop of violence in you, which means resurrection is about total nonviolence. We now know through the resurrection that death does not get the last word, that uh, our survival is guaranteed, and that we can go forward and to be totally nonviolent like Jesus and renounce death and the means and metaphors of death and practice active nonviolence. So I don't know if you're seeing where I'm coming from. That's the gospel. Uh, Christology comes along and it tries to unpack what, well, what is the meaning of this person. And after the third and fourth century, when theologians were now supporting warfare, uh, creating an institutional church modeled on the empire, which led, they created the just war theory, and eventually we had holy crusades to kill for Jesus. We put Jesus on such a pedestal that he's unrecognizable to the gospel. That's high Christology. I suppose my critics would say I'm coming at this as a low Christology. I don't know. I, the, the, you know, the word Christ is not the name of Jesus. It's a title. It's the Greek word for the anointed one, or which was from the Messiah. And Richard Rohr has written about Jesus recently in his book, The Universal Christ. But I'm saying that the Gospels portray Jesus as the epitome of active, loving nonviolence. So now we can theologically say, uh, in a new Christology of nonviolence, that every image of the universal Christ would be one who reigns over a sovereignty of universal peace, universal love, universal compassion, and everything in the reign of Christ, uh, the anointed one, is total nonviolence. All of this needs to be unpacked and studied for the centuries to come, and that gives me hope. I think this is all the future of theology. I know that's a lot, but we covered a lot of ground there, Dennis. Thanks. All right. So how about the Trinity? How um, do you understand the Trinity in relation to violence, nonviolence, and peacemaking? I mean, I don't know any person except uh, my board. You know, when I I wrote this up as my master's thesis and I stood before the scary board of well-known theologians who asked me questions like you're asking me. So what does the Trinity mean? <laughs> it's a critically important question, though, right? And we, we Christians need to talk about it. What does this mean we have? Well, who is God? 
The question of theology is what is our image of God? Uh, and that comes from, for a Christian, the revelation of God in the in the nonviolent Jesus and Jesus of Nazareth, whom Gandhi and King said are the greatest person of nonviolence who ever lived. So we begin to unpack a new image of God. And then what does it mean for uh, our understanding of the Trinity, which historically in patriarchal language was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? It's all fine and rich. But let me just say a word about God first, since we're talking theology. All of what I've said reveals, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, but I could unpack, and I've done it in 35 other books, how the Gospels and life reveal, it's a slow revelation of God, not as a God of war, but the living God of peace. Not as a God of violence, who blesses violence, who can't wait to kill us and throw us into hell, but as a God of active nonviolence. Not as a God of hate, who really hates us, or at least them. You know, our God hates our enemies and wants to kill them, and we pray to that God. That's not God, but a living God of universal love, who's usually on the side of people we don't like, by the way. Uh, not a God of death, but the living God of life. This changes everything. This is really, friends, the most important thing I have to say today. And and I'm going to paraphrase a very obscure teaching of Mahatma Gandhi, which I think is very, very important, which I once had a long talk about with Richard Rohr and Daniel Berrigan and many others. Gandhi said the invitation now is to begin to reimagine God as a God of nonviolence, to reimagine the nonviolence of God. And if we do that, Gandhi said, we can begin to worship the living God, the living God of peace and nonviolence. And if we begin to worship not a God of war who blesses our wars or a God of hatred or racism or wants us to be rich or some of us, but the living God of peace and nonviolence, then we will become people of peace and nonviolence. Jesus called the beloved sons and daughters of the God of peace and nonviolence. And that's a theology of nonviolence in a nutshell. So, you know, when I was uh, like 34 years ago, I took a highfalutin graduate class on the Trinity. And yet we read all the theologians who've written about the Trinity over the last 2000 years. And I didn't like any of them. I thought that'd make you laugh, Dennis, but it didn't. Um, I mean, from St. Augustine to people now, because it's all justifications of the empire or the crusades or, you know, I don't understand. Except for one, a very obscure medieval theologian named Richard of St. Victor, who you probably <laughs> never heard about. Yeah. I couldn't believe it when I read him. I still think about him today. And I've never heard anybody who even knows him. He said, can you imagine this? A thousand years ago, God is a community of love. That makes me want to weep. That's so beautiful and so infinitely rich. Uh, that's where I'm going. And then 10 years ago, my friend, Father Richard Rohr, started writing and giving talks about the Trinity. And all he was talking about is this Richard of St. Victor. And I felt def- confirmed in that. So what I'm saying is, what would a Trinitarian theology of, of nonviolence mean? It would mean that God is a community of nonviolence and infinite love. And therefore, if we're imagining God as a community of love and nonviolence, 
humanity is called to be a community of love and nonviolence. That's how it works in my mind. And we will need to spend the rest of our lives reflecting on and worshiping the Trinity as a community of love and nonviolence. Therefore, God as the creator, as mother and father, the God of peace. Christ, the holy Christ, the anointed one, as the epitome of what it means to be a human being in terms of total nonviolence and universal love, um, the gospel language of the father, son, and their love between one another, the love and the beloved. This is what Richard St. Victor got into. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of love between them. All of this is so rich, and this is what we should all be talking about morning, noon, and night. And therefore, I'm part of that, God. You know, this is a practical theology. We, with the Christ, we are the beloved of God because he says we're brothers and sisters of one another and him. We get to live in the Holy Spirit of total nonviolence and universal love. I find all that very, very rich. Thank you. All right. And you uh, dedicate a chapter to human suffering. So what's the place of human suffering in relation to nonviolence? And you also use this phrase, the powerful powerlessness of God. So if you could talk about that. Right. And I got that phrase from the Jesuits who were assassinated in 1989, because that's all they were talking about as liberation theologians in the Civil War of El Salvador. My friend Ignacio Eacaria wrote the theology and pastoral letters of Oscar Romero. These were really serious people. And they're talking about the powerlessness of the poor of El Salvador and God's on the side of the poor there. God for God is sharing in the powerlessness of the poor. And you see that in the crucified Jesus, nonviolent Jesus. Well, so I was trying, I'm trying to give you a little background to where I'm coming from. I, having lived in El Salvador in 1985 at the height of the war, and, and, and experience daily bombings and being interrogated by death squads and then go to Nicaragua. And now I've been to over 25 war zones around the world, including Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and having therefore organized demonstrations against war and injustice and nuclear weapons, spent a lot of time in jail and in court my whole life. I've always either recovering from jail and arrest, preparing for court, or preparing to be arrested again for 40 years now. And this is going to affect your theology. I thought this was normal Christian living, having read the Gospels, um, and spend time with homeless people and shelters and hospitals and death row. You see that the world is a world of suffering. But if you're rich and comfortable in the United States and in, in the in the 1%, overprivileged, entitled white people, white men, for example, you don't talk about suffering. But uh, this has to be critical, important to, well, it is for Jesus. So therefore, it's got to be an authentic theology. That Jesus is on the side of the suffering, then becomes one of the suffering. And he uses suffering, as Martin Luther King said, every day of his life uh, to transform it into redemptive suffering love that our willingness to accept suffering in the struggle for justice and peace becomes redemptive. This is how nonviolent works. Nonviolence works. So he goes into jail and he suffers and gives his life for it even. And it's his suffering love that um, 
helps white people, uh, the scales fall from their eyes and to recognize their racism and move toward the beloved community. So I'm talking here about suffering and God and powerlessness, if you're still with me. Now, uh, I thought I understood all this, Dennis, which is silly to even say. So theology is, everyone is a theologian, and we're all called to think about God and ponder God and imagine who is the God that I worship? What has been my experience of God? So my friend, forgive me my name dropping, is Archbishop Tutu. who's a really good friend of mine. And he was getting older and sick. He, he died uh, six months ago, as you know, but... About five years ago, I went to South Africa to spend a day with him because I, I, I wanted to see him before he died. Wow, did he let me have it for hours and hours. And one of the things he said to me was, you think you know God? I mean, he, we were that close that he could make fun of me and, and push me. You think you understand nonviolence? And then he starts in this long talk about nonviolence. So I probably would have written my book. I've learned a lot more. He said, oh, it's, it's so moving. To understand nonviolence and the nonviolence of God, you have to talk about free will, which you may notice, Dennis, I never mentioned in this book. And a light went on for me. And he gave me this long lecture, Archbishop Tutu. If God is a God of peace and nonviolence, God has to, by the definition of nonviolence, allow total free will. There's no force or coercion upon any human being to be as nonviolent as Jesus. All God can do is love us and try and send us Jesus and nice holy prophets and inclinations in the Holy Spirit. Hey, folks, don't wage war. Don't build nuclear weapons. Don't kill one another. Don't hurt yourselves. Live in peace with one another. And by allowing us to be violent or nonviolent, God knows we're going to reject nonviolence and choose violence, which every human being in history has done, and therefore kill one another and prepare to destroy the whole planet. And therefore, Tutu says to me, God is in eternal suffering because humanity has rejected Jesus's way of nonviolence. And then Tutu burst into tears, sobbing, and collapsed into my arms, telling me this. Mm. This is the critical point of understanding God and Jesus and nonviolence, he said. And therefore, it applies to any understanding of theodicy, suffering, power, powerlessness. So you get into really deep waters here that you see on the cross, Jesus, a person of total nonviolence, who's totally powerless. And then you read Gandhi and Dr. King and you go, not at all. He's more powerful than all the weapons of the world combined. And he uses the power of, as Martin called it, redemptive suffering love. Go ahead and kill me. And it becomes a spiritual explosion that will eventually disarm every human being who ever lived, because we're all going to be so ashamed of our violence in light of his spectacular nonviolence and universal love that we will convert. Um, that's how all of this works. And those are some images that get at your question, Dennis. All right. So on to soteriology. How do you understand 
uh, particularly Jesus' atoning death on the cross and the, the notion that he came to save us from our sins, not just the sins of our oppressors, but our own sins. How do you tie in nonviolence to all that? Wow. Well, that's, again, such a big question. So teriology means salvation. And I think because of my book, there have been a couple of really good books in the last 10 years on a new um, theology of atonement based in nonviolence. There's a book called Nonviolent Atonement. And every, if people are interested in that, they ought to go and read the, look up those books. Danny so let Weaver's me tell book. you, huh? Danny nonviolent Weaver's Atonement. Book. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But, you know, this was 30 years ago. There was no, but when I wrote my book, no one was saying this. Martin Luther King never lived to even begin to talk about a theology or spirituality of nonviolence. There was nothing written about the nonviolence of Jesus, even in the, in the 60s. All of this is new because of Andrew Takme and John Howard Yoder. And that led to Walter Wink and Jim Douglas, and then maybe to Ched Myers and me, and now many others who are talking about this. But let me ask, tell you how I approached this question <laughs> for this book, which was my master's thesis. And there I'm sitting one day, 30 years ago, this month actually, in front of this board of very intimidating theologians, and they're saying, well, what about soteriology and salvation? And you are all wrong. And I said, hey, wait a second. And I gave it right back to them. And I said, if you are being bombed in El Salvador and the death squads are coming out to interrogate you, which happened to me many times, okay? And you're watching all this and, you know, how many 75,000 people were brutally killed in that tiny little country, including 17 priests and how many nuns and 5,000 catechists. And then one of the greatest person ever in history, Archbishop Oscar Romero. What does soteriology mean there? If the hermeneutic is critical to our understanding of everything, I'm talking about our understanding of salvation cannot be from sitting by a swimming pool and let's have another drink and a nice big dinner because we're really rich and comfortable white North Americans, the 1% of humanity. That's not, has anything to do with the gospel. It's an upside down story. And we got to be downwardly mobile and siding with the poor and oppressed to begin to understand what Jesus is talking about since we live here in the new Roman Empire in America. Uh, this is very serious stuff. And, and, and our perspective is all wrong. Pretty much, it's like the Seinfeld episode. Whatever we think we know about God and theology, the opposite is correct. <laughs> so I said, salvation in a Salvatorian refugee camp, you could translate this to mean Ukraine or Sudan or death row, is the end of the bombings. It's the end of poverty and the end of disease. Right now, not when we die. Jesus talks over and over about salvation here and now among the poor, the prisoner, the sick, the dying, all those who are being hurt and destroyed and marginalized and excluded. So it would mean salvation for the people of Ukraine, for the people on death row, for, and then for all of humanity, because we're so pathetic as we live under our own threat of nuclear war and climate catastrophe. Jesus, and this, so this is where I'm coming from. He's saying his first sentence over and over again is the kingdom of God is at hand. 
the kingdom of God is a new culture of total nonviolence. And the prayer is, may your kingdom, peace, love, and nonviolence, come on earth as it already is in heaven. He wants salvation to start today here on earth. And if you enter into the life of total nonviolence and universal love, eternal life has begun today because you know that resurrection is, is where we're all getting ready for resurrection. So the rich, the war makers, the people living off of um, Wall Street and the Pentagon who build nuclear weapons want a soteriology about the next life. And we're all brainwashed. There's the same problem with ecclesiology. The culture of violence and war and empire is always telling the church how to be church, what God is like, and what salvation is like. And everything is to justify the status quo of systemic institutionalized violence and killing and corporate greed and everything that's bringing death to the poor of the planet. And it's all wrong. It's all a lie. I'm not saying that salvation is not about the next life. I'm saying salvation includes this life. And it's, it's, it's measured on your discipleship of the nonviolent Jesus and how far you go in welcoming God's reign of total nonviolence here and now and being part of it and stepping into it, which means repenting and turning away from the culture of violence. I don't even know if any of this makes sense to you, Dennis, but this is, this is what soteriology means to me. Therefore, if you get into the question of atonement, I mean, we have been so messed up by 1,700 years by the empire, and it screwed up our theology and spirituality that now to be a Christian is to bless the troops, have guns, build nuclear weapons, and kill some people for Jesus. I mean, this is really insanity. But the same thing happened with the Third Reich. The same thing happened in the Middle Ages with the Crusades. It's been going on forever. We all get co-opted. So instead of saying Jesus died to save us from our sins, you'd say, first of all, well, Jesus died because the empire killed him. (laughs) He didn't want to die. He wanted every human being to go, wow, the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, I reject war and violence and the empire from the emperor on down. And we all live as the beloved community so that Jesus could have, the poor guy could have lived to be a ripe old age and an old man like Buddha who died of indigestion. I wish Jesus could have had that. Jesus wanted everybody to accept his teachings of peace, love, compassion, nonviolence, and sermon them out. And everyone rejected him, including every person who heard him in the community. That's what happened in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, so, you know, then you're, it all sounds so complicated, and I can imagine listeners saying, this is totally wrong. But Jesus is like Gandhi and Dr. King. He's giving us a methodology to disarm and change the world, which is work. We have a responsibility. You can't sit back and do nothing. Active nonviolence means actively getting involved in grassroots nonviolent campaigns from Jesus to Martin Luther King to disarm the world. So he sends people out, remember, as lambs into the midst of wolves. They're gonna, you're going to get killed, but keep saying, peace be with you. And he marches to Jerusalem where he does nonviolent civil disobedience. That's why he's killed. That's why Gandhi was killed. That's why Martin Luther King was killed. That's why Oscar Romero was killed. They were not sitting around saying, you know, uh, 
everything's going to be all right in the next world when you live in peace and happiness in the clouds. No, they were saying, stop the war and killing now. And, um, and Jesus was arrested and tortured and killed, and he was still nonviolent. And it's his way of total nonviolent suffering love, the beginning, the middle, and at the very end, that is, transforms us and it atones for us. But it's very difficult language because uh, the saving us from our sins, you know, I, I don't buy it. I don't use that language at all um, because it, it basically is the language of the 1%, which says you're off the hook. Jesus saved you. You don't have to do anything. You're going to heaven. No, we have work to do. It's, the real question is discipleship, take up the cross and follow me. Join my campaign. When he rises from the dead, he says, now I'm sending you forth to carry on my campaign of total nonviolence into the world of total violence. That's how we're saved from the sin of violence, which is a social sin, which is death. We're saved by participating in the life and way of nonviolence and resistance, which Jesus started to bring down empire, to end all wars, to end all injustices, therefore to abolish nuclear weapons and stop environmental destruction and create a new culture of peace, love, and nonviolence here on Earth. Uh, those were some first thoughts about that question. All right. So, yeah, we could go on with that for hours. Yeah. But um, speaking of the afterlife, then, how do you relate nonviolence and peacemaking uh, to eschatology, the last things? Well, it's the same kind of question. And um, lately, I wrote a book on climate change called They Will Inherit the Earth, Peace and Nonviolence in a Time of War and Climate Change. And uh, I've begun to realize with Thomas Merton that the older you get, the deeper you go into this, the more you can begin to unpack eschatology in light of nonviolence. And now we're getting somewhere. So eschatology is the study of the end times, the end of time, the beginning of eternity, the start of eternal life, heaven, coming to earth, all rolled into one, the end of the world, the apocalypse. So all this insanity of a false theology and a false spirituality says, Jesus, when Jesus comes again, the final apocalypse, we're all going to get killed or they're going to get killed. And that's the whole point that eschatology coming from a perspective of nonviolence means the nonviolent coming of Jesus is the coming of total nonviolence on earth. And now we're getting somewhere. So I call this eschatological nonviolence. Now, if you can just hang in here with me for a second, how I understand it. Jesus is totally nonviolent, and he announces that the kingdom of God is at hand. Gandhi comes along and he said one of the most shocking things in all of human history. Martin Luther King said Gandhi was the greatest Christian who ever lived, which is such an insult to Christians because Gandhi's Hindu. (laughs) And he's true. He's right. I would add that Gandhi's the greatest theologian who ever lived because Gandhi said the kingdom of God is nonviolent. The kingdom of God is nonviolence. That is so shocking and so helpful. He, here's a quote from Gandhi. When every human being on earth finally practices 
the nonviolence Jesus taught and disarms, then God will reign on earth exactly as God reigns in heaven. This then is a new eschatology of nonviolence. It's very deep and it's really good news. Everything we're being taught is wrong. Um, So we're invited to live in the kingdom of God in the perfect present moment of peace and universal love, to claim our citizenship, not in the United States or the Third Reich or the Soviet Union or Ukraine or anywhere, but in the kingdom of God. We're citizens of of the reign of total nonviolence. And we try to live and act as if we're already there today, which means we breathe and walk consciously and mindfully in total peace as if we are living in the promised land in the fullness of God's reign here and now. And that whole theological question of the already and the not yet, it's totally here right now and it's not yet here right now. The not yet is our fault. It's not God's fault or Jesus' fault. Jesus said it's here if you want it. We just don't want a reign of total nonviolence. What I'm thinking This is trying to be practical and helpful, and this is where theology and spirituality can help you. If you really study catastrophic climate change, as I do, really study how close we are now to nuclear weapons, uh, to nuclear warfare, more than ever since Hiroshima, you can get so depressed and despairing. Um, I invite people to start living and practicing eschatological nonviolence for the rest of their lives, to claim their identity as sons and daughters of the God of peace, which is what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, therefore to be peacemakers and people of universal love, to live in discipleship to the nonviolent Jesus, and therefore to spend your life in God's kingdom of total nonviolence from this moment on. Wow! If you really do this, then you're getting way beyond my friend Thich Nhat Hanh, who who told me, the great Buddhist leader, that's exactly what he's been trying to teach everybody through Buddhism. Uh, But it's so infinitely rich. We live as if we are already in the kingdom of God. So we practice total nonviolence, and we go forward doing everything we can to end all violence, to resist and abolish war, poverty, greed, racism, sexism, nuclear weapons, gun violence, the death penalty, and catastrophic climate change, that is the destruction of the earth. And then you have hope, and then you have meaning, because the focus is on God and the kingdom of God. And the responsibilities, I mean, it's so hard. You have total responsibility, and yet you're free, because it's in God's hands. This is God's work. It's God's peace movement. And um, I've learned a lot more about eschatology since I wrote this 30 years ago. And to me, it's the most exciting way forward. And I hope it would become the future that more and more people will begin to talk about an eschatology of nonviolence. It might help us a lot. This is what Thomas Merton was doing at the end of his life. Martin Luther King never lived to get to do this, or Romero. Uh, The Berrigans did. Anyway, go ahead. I can talk about it forever. All right. So as long as you were on ologies, um, how about ecclesiology, the people of God, the the beloved community? (laughs) So that's obviously got to be very key. We're not just doing this on our own. How does it tie into nonviolence? So ecclesiology is the study of the church, the study of the church. And um, 
you know, I've been writing stuff for Pope Francis and the Cardinals in the Vatican. It's the first time in history that they're talking about nonviolence. But as you can imagine what I'm arguing, that if Jesus is totally nonviolent, my definition of the church in general is the community of the followers of the nonviolent Jesus. Therefore, uh, it's a community of gospel nonviolence. I said that in the Vatican. That is totally not what 99% of all churches certainly in North America, think, and Europe. That's not the definition of the church. You know, there's all kinds of definitions of the church, but, you know, in higher up places, it's the institutional church. In other places, it's the people of God, uh, and so forth, the church of the poor. I'm saying the church is the community of the followers of the nonviolent Jesus, and therefore it's a church of gospel nonviolence, and therefore it has no just war theory, it has nothing to do with war or violence. In fact, <laughs> you can't be a Christian or a member of the church if you're in any military in the world, if you have a gun, if you build nuclear weapons, or if you are racist or sexist. I mean, none of us would fit into that community. Martin Luther King would, and Gandhi would, and Dorothy Day would. I mean, we all have to become like them. So we don't want that ecclesiology of nonviolence. So much so that the first three centuries, the church was a community of total nonviolence. And basically, once you were baptized, you were beheaded that afternoon. But in year 315, the Roman emperor, Constantine, came along and said, okay, I'm now a Christian. Christianity is an illegal underground movement. It's illegal. He legalized Christianity. So, you know, you don't have to practice nonviolence anymore. He threw out the Sermon on the Mount turned to the pagan Cicero and began to justify violence and warfare, which eventually led to the just war theory. You see it all in St. Augustine, and it's horrifying. So for 1,700 years, the church has approved and blessed killing and bombings and slavery and sexism and on and on and on and nuclear weapons. It's all Christians who build nuclear weapons in the United States. I've worked on this. So once you get Christians preparing the end of the world, you know we have nothing to do with Jesus. And that's not the church or the, what Jesus was trying to form, the community of followers. They rejected him in Gethsemane, and we continue to reject him today. He doesn't reject us. He's still calling us. Um, so what would an ecclesiology of nonviolence mean? You know, I encourage people to go read Pope Francis's World Day of Peace message from January 1st, 2017, which I was asked to write. It's the first statement on nonviolence in the history of the church. It's never been said before. It's saying that every aspect of the global church and every church, all Christian churches, has to be totally nonviolent, has to teach the total nonviolence of Jesus, has to form every Christian to in the practice of gospel nonviolence. In other words, you're trained in it. You have to get rid of your guns, resign from the military, have not build weapons, have nothing to do with war. You renounce nationalism, whatever nation state. You're not, we're not part of that because we're part of the kingdom of God. And we worship the God of peace. And um, we partake in the Eucharist as a new covenant of nonviolence, as I was saying, you know, with my body broken for you, my blood shed for you, do this. We go forth. To, let, to give our lives, including our bodies and blood, to end the killing in the world, not to take and shed the blood of anybody else. That's why at Selma 
in his speech, Martin Luther King said a shocking thing. He gave his definition of the church, which only Dr. King can give, having lived and giving his life for gospel nonviolence. Daniel Berrigan heard it and almost fell out of the seat. He was in the church in Selma that day. Martin said, quote, the church is the place you go from. That totally turns our understanding of the church upside down. No, Martin, the church is the place you go to. So we can have a community and praise God. And then we can go on to work and kill people and bomb whoever we want. No, 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 no. The church is around the altar, the community of worshiping the God of peace. And from there, we're sent as instruments of peace and disarmament uh, in God's movement, peace movement, to disarm the whole human race and to give our lives like Jesus did. So an ecclesiology of nonviolence is really important. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about it if you want to in the last question you have. All right. So um, practicing nonviolence, of course, and you know from personal experience, can be very demanding, very difficult. It can cost you your life, of course. Um, can you talk more about the spirituality um, that we need to develop within ourselves, the spiritual practices, in order to make that even possible? Well, see, that's the point, to paraphrase Bonhoeffer. It's got to be costly nonviolence, not cheap nonviolence. I mean, the main thing Jesus said is, if you want to follow me, take up the cross. And the cross is not, I have a, I'm having a really bad day. I have a difficult job. I don't have my, I, I, that's not the cross. The cross is his way of nonviolent resistance to empire and the culture of violence. And you're all going to be resisting. It's going to hurt every step of the way. And the farther you go, the more they're going to want to arrest you and kill you. Take my word for this. Um, so it's a costly theology of nonviolence. Uh, and we all have to be practicing it uh, first and foremost. It's, you know, this, we had more time and I get into this in the very end of the book. Liberation theology had said we have to move from orthodoxy to orthopraxis. Instead of just all this highfalutin talk, first and foremost, it has to be practiced. You do theology and then you reflect on it as opposed to thinking about it, and then you go forth and doing it. It's a, it turned the whole world upside down, and it's very true with the theology of nonviolence. So that's why, you know, literally I finished writing this book and went to a plowshares action and faced 20 years in prison. I, I was trying to make sure I'm doing this stuff, not just writing and talking about it, and that's been very important to me. Well, if you start engaging in active nonviolence, in the United States that means demonstrations against racism war, nuclear weapons, corporate greed, the, you know, everything from the way the homeless are treated to um, the destruction of the environment. You need God. And you need communities. And you need church. And you need everything that the church has to offer. And there's so much. Here's a couple of them to get at your question. Um, the whole rich tradition of mysticism and contemplation in the church mm. Going back 2,000 years, I, I, I try to do a minimally one hour of meditation a day for almost 40 years now. Gandhi did two hours a day. Um, I don't know how you can live a life of peace and nonviolence in this terrible world without meditating, going and being with a God of peace who loves you infinitely, reflecting on the life of Jesus, 
And then you feel better to go forth into the world and you get disarmed. Likewise with the sacraments. As a Catholic priest, you know, the Eucharist should be sharing in the life of Jesus and his body and blood, hearing the scriptures read. All the sacraments are so beautiful. Marriage is bringing you into the God of peace to making you a peaceful, nonviolent couple, theoretically. I mean, it's obvious how all of this changes you. Um, there's all these tools that we have. And in a spirituality of peace and nonviolence, basically you see your life, it's connected to eschatological nonviolence, that your life is in the following the footsteps of the nonviolent Jesus, that your life is having nothing to do with violence ever again, that your life is living in the kingdom of God from now on. As I said, therefore, claiming your citizenship, not as an American, but as a member of the kingdom, as a, as a citizen of the kingdom of God and and spreading the beloved community, as Martin would say, all these rich things. And then you, I've been working against war and nuclear weapons for 40 years. Pray for me. Uh, You go deep into a spirituality and you have to learn that the call is to be faithful to the journey, not to be effective, or have results. You try to end all the wars, and you try to be effective, but in your prayer, you learn to be detached from the outcome of your work, so that it's God's outcome. The outcome is in better hands than yours. This is a deep spirituality that was, it's in, it's in Hinduism and Buddhism, and it's throughout the Gospels. So then you learn a kind of a, it's beautiful. Jesus said it, a feminine ecological image of your life. Your life bears good fruit, which is different from results and effectiveness. That's Pentagon language. I could go on and on. Um, You know, I want to say in light of that, another image I had of the church in light of nonviolence, which would help us understand the spirituality, is that the church, if it's a community of nonviolence in a world of total violence, then we're talking about the church is and, and all of us is in a new 12-step group. Hmm. The church should be like violence anonymous. And we all go in, we gather in community, and we repent of our violence. We turn to our higher power, the God of peace. We study the nonviolent Jesus. We make restitution, and we try to be sober for the rest of our lives. We go forth living the sobriety of nonviolence. That's what every church in the world should be doing, and we're doing the opposite of that. And so, therefore, you would end up with a kind of a spirituality of, of nonviolence where you there are boundaries to our life. I, I, you can never drink. I can't do drugs if you're in the 12-step group. I can never do violence again. But once I keep the boundary line, Love can begin to grow and flourish. I can begin to really discover new depths of peace. And we can too together. It's just infinitely rich. That's why I hope everybody will begin to unpack a new spirituality and theology of nonviolence. And maybe we've discussed most everything. So um, you have a lot of history in the peace movement. Um, we don't have time for a in-depth history, but if you could pick out some highlights, say, over since the 1980s that you've experienced, that you've noticed, and if maybe you could talk about some trends, where the peace movement's been, where it's going, or where you think it should go. Well, so you've been I don't so know. far, just to say, yeah. you've been obviously very intentionally critical of the powers that be now, but this will give you an opportunity to offer some criticism as necessary about the peace movement itself. 
Well, I wonder about what the peace movement is, but here's the good news. Never before have we known what we know now, which is that everything Jesus said works. All of this is, everybody listening to me needs to get this book. It's one of the most important books in history by the great Harvard scholar Erica Chenoweth and her colleague Maria Stefan. The book is called Why Civil Resistance Works. They studied every single war and violent revolution from 1900 to 2006, only using statistics and math. It's like reading the phone book. And I read this book. And they are widely respected in the UN, the State Department, everywhere in the world. And they prove through statistical research that where nonviolence was used to resist occupation and war and to lead a nonviolent revolution toward a more nonviolent democratic society, it worked. Where violence was used, it didn't work. It's incredible. Gandhi never had that. Martin Luther King never had that. We have that now. We know this works. That it is nonviolence is more powerful and effective uh, towards social change through grassroots, bottom up people power movements than anything with violence, whether it's violent revolutions or the use of violence by the Ukrainians to stop the Russian war. It's not going to work, friends. It's the nonviolent resistance and nonviolent non cooperation of the Ukrainians that will stop Russia's war. Just as I'm going to open a can of worms and say that violent resistance against the Third Reich didn't work. It just sowed seeds for future wars. Where it was tried, it worked. Denmark, Bulgaria, Norway. So you're asking, in my own lifetime, we have seen more active, organized nonviolence than ever before in the history of the world. There have been over 85 nonviolent revolutions since 1970. It's all documented, and you folks have to do their homework, and you'll never read about it in the New York Times or anywhere. It's just incredible. So you see it in the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of communism nonviolently to the people power movements. Remember the three-day people power that got Marcos to leave in the Philippines to the greatest movements in history is led by Lima Gaboe in the early 2000s in Liberia. She won the Nobel Peace Prize. That She's my hero. I think she's the current Martin Luther King. You could talk about the end of apartheid and the, how Mandela became from prison to president. It was ultimately through organized grassroots nonviolence. Any violence didn't work, but there's always creative nonviolent ways to resist. It's infinitely interesting. Two, just in general, you know, was it February 12th, 2003? We now know that over 12 million people marched in over 600 cities on every continent of the planet against the impending war in Iraq. That's never happened before in history. The New York Times said the next day, there's now two global superpowers, the United States and the global peace movement. We need to keep unpacking that. Everybody's got to still keep building the movement. That's why I say, if you say, I'm going to work on being a peaceful, nonviolent person for the rest of my life, that's not nonviolence. That's presumed. You have to also have one foot in the global grassroots movements of peace and nonviolence and justice. Uh, that's what the story of Jesus tells us. And there are many other positive signs of hope. We just had the biggest movement in U.S. history in the last two years, Black Lives Matter. We know 26 million people participate in that, and less than 1% of them were violent. The Parkland kids, to me, are exemplaries of how to fight 
gun violence, this insane epidemic of guns and violence. And I'm talking about the, the Parkland kids who organized after the massacre in their school in right. Parkland, Florida. Greta Thunberg has inspired millions of young people to uh, join an environmental movement. It's all young people working to stop uh, the digging up of fossil fuels. This is the hope of the world. The Women's March Against Trump. Personally, for me, one of the most hopeful movements on the planet is ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, which I've been really involved in, which led to the UN Treaty, which now has 85 nations have signed it, saying they will have nothing to do with nuclear weapons. 65 of them have voted on it and approved it by law. They just this week had an incredible meeting in Vienna. Um, and they are on track to outlaw nuclear weapons. And their plan, their strategy is to get every nation in the world to shame the nine nuclear weapons nation holders into disarming. And they're on track. Uh, so a lot is happening. The world is moving. Two-thirds of the human race are personally involved in uh, grassroots movements for justice, disarmament, peace through creative nonviolence. That's never happened before. Uh, what we need to do is bring a new theology and spirituality and ecclesiology to disarm all the churches and all the Christians. The Christians should be leading the way in all this and we're the last. And that's shameful. Christians need to become as nonviolent as Jesus and get with the program. Those are some of my thoughts. And I think there are signs of hope. And Pope Francis is surely doing a lot to teach and promote uh, nonviolence. And what would you say is your critique of the Christian peace movement then? Well, there is nobody's, it's too small. You know, it's almost non-existent. You know, there are little pockets of it. And uh, we're failing uh, to teach Christians that Jesus is quite serious about this stuff. When he rises from the dead, his first words are, peace be with you. And we're like, is that all you got to offer us? Peace is what he wants us to accept. And to we, he wants us to take the Sermon on the Mount as seriously as Gandhi did. So I think, uh, you know, we're very violent and we need to be nonviolent toward one another in the church and in the movements and we're our own worst enemies. Um, and we need to all help get over ourselves and pointing fingers and realize we're all in the same boat together. Keep inviting people to join us, starting in our parishes and our congregations. They should all be centers of peace and nonviolence. You were going to ask me, I'll just say, how do we go? I mean, so that's, I think, one of the critical things that needs to happen is not happening. And everybody, every movement needs to be rooted in nonviolence, and they're not. Uh, that, uh, in fact, if you're, if you're following what's happening, the new generation is very hostile toward Gandhi and Dr. King. Well, that's just stupid. Um, and we're, 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 as I say, we're all our own. Yeah. Worst. Well, and, um, but the way to justice is through nonviolence. Means are the ends. What goes around comes around. You cannot have a just world through violent means. That's the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and that's why Jesus is... That's why I was going to say that every church and priest and minister and theology student seminary needs to study the Sermon on the Mount every day for the next 20 years. That should be the only thing they should read, not read anything else about the church or even in the Bible. And not only is that ha not happening, they're not reading the Gospels. Um, but we all need to go back to 
This is very political and practical stuff in the Sermon on the Mount. And then every congregation and parish needs to be trained in gospel nonviolence and emphasizing the Sermon on the Mount. So we should all be experts of gospel nonviolence. But people who care, activists for justice, for Mother Earth, for the poor, uh, for Ukraine, we need to be experts in how nonviolence works. So everybody needs to take trainings, weekend workshops on how the, on the methodology of nonviolence. In other words, you, you couldn't have joined a march with Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement without going through a three hour training. That should be normative in every church now. Every church should have regular trainings once a month that every year you have to go back and get trained. Oh, if a shooter comes, I'm not going to get a gun and try to kill them. In fact, I'm always working to disarm people, but mainly I'm working to end all the war and violence. So, um, we need everybody. That's what I, I always say in terms of grassroots movements. Um, nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something. Everybody has something to bring to the work of transforming the world in the way Jesus hoped and prayed and lived. Okay. Well, thanks and, for having me. Yeah. So, um, and finally, just if you could brief, briefly go over what you are doing now personally. Oh, thank you. Well, um, I continue to write and speak, and except during the pandemic, I haven't been speaking, but I've launched a new nonprofit organization called the Beatitude Center of the Nonviolent Jesus to teach all what I've just been saying. And I do regular Zooms, workshops, retreats, and classes on all these questions. I have a whole wide variety of incredible speakers, including Gandhi's grandson, Raj Mahon Gandhi, who wrote the best biography of Gandhi, and James Lawson who's still alive, Martin Luther King's great friend, who Dr. King said is the greatest teacher of nonviolence in the world. He's 93. He's going to do another Zoom with me in September. You can look all this up at BeatitudeCenter.org. I have a whole bunch of free podcasts that you can listen to where I talk on all these issues and on Gandhi and King. Uh, There's a website about me, which is in the process of being revamped, JohnDeere.org, and has all my books on nonviolence. I wrote a book on the Sermon on the Mount a couple of years ago because there have only been five written in the last century. It just boggles my mind. My book is The Beatitudes of Peace. I have other books on the nonviolent Jesus called Jesus the Rebel, The Questions of Jesus, Walking the Way. I wrote recently a kind of my definitive book on nonviolence called The Nonviolent Life that people might like. I, my last book was a, um, using the Psalms that are about peace and creation to help us pray through war and climate change. At the moment, I'm writing a thousand-page commentary on the four Gospels from a Gandhian kingy and hermeneutic of nonviolence. So pray oh, wow. for me, Dennis. Yeah, that sounds and interesting. Coming out in about two years. So I'm working away, and I'm available to give talks in churches all around the country and the world. People can write to me through the BeatitudeCenter.org or JohnDeere.org. Excellent. Wow, good stuff. Well, I'm Dennis Metzler. You've been listening to The Charge. We've been with Father John Deere, uh, the author of The God of Peace Toward a Theology of Nonviolence. Uh, so there it is. It's available below. Check out the follow the link. So, John, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me, Dennis, and for all your good work. And may the God of peace bless us all and make us good peacemakers to our poor world. Thank you, Dennis. All right. Amen. <laughs>